Let's get stompy. This is the Veteran Wargamer. This is the Veteran Wargamer. I am your host, Jay Arnold. In this episode, number 72, we are joined by novelist and, I think it's fair to say, mecha enthusiast, Ashley R. Pollard. Ashley, how are you today? I'm cool. What's up? Well, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about Big Stomp Your Robots, mecha, mechs, whatever term you want to use, and uh, it's... There's a, I think you can say there's a bit of a resurgence coming or in in progress with uh, BattleTech in particular, and 40K has been doing big stompy robots for a little bit, and so I think it's it's high time that I talked about them on the show. Uh, in the meantime, I'm going to ask you the same question I ask all of my guests the first time they're on, and that is, what makes you a veteran war gamer? That's an interesting question. Um, I'm going to put my psychology hat on because that's what I was in my day job before I retired. I'd say it could probably be best as self-defined. I'm not really into labels, but given this is a podcast and you're asking me the question, it'd be rude (laughs) not to kind of examine, uh, unpack it a bit. It's an interesting question. It, it, it does come down to it's, it's self-defined, but I think the way I would look at it is somebody who's done it for a reason, gaming, you know, war gaming. Uh, I mean, you could be a, a veteran board gamer, but a veteran war gamer is somebody who's done it for a while. Um, they may have fallen out and come back. I think that's, that's probably would be my defining feature. Okay. Um, because... Most kids, you know, and we all were kids once, you know, play games. And, you know, lots of people, and, and the market's changed so much since when I was a child, um, that it's kind of expected that kids will play something like Games Workshop, uh, Warhammer, Warhammer 40K, uh, but then they get married, have kids, settle down, and there is a fallout. Not everybody comes back. So I think if you come back and then pursue it again, that's what makes you a veteran. It's having that experience and having enjoyed it and then seen something more within the hobby that fulfills that inner need for creativity, uh, fantasy, the ability to, to travel to worlds of your imagination. Mm-hmm. Is that a reasonable answer? Absolutely. Anything else you'd like to know about veteran walker? I suppose also having played with various editions of rules. Yeah, absolutely. You know, especially for doing Games Workshop. I mean, we're in what, seventh edition now, I believe, for, for 40K? Oh, I think they're on ninth. Ninth? Oh, God. You see, I've, I've just not kept up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think they're on ninth. And now, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you did some work with FASA on BattleTech. So 
and if we're talking BattleTech and FASA, that's you got to get in your Wayback Machine for that because we're talking eighties, maybe barely into the early nineties. So that we're that, talking nineteen eighty five. Yeah, um, I, I, I would think that, that would firmly establish your bona fides as as a veteran war gamer there. Thank you. I also reviewed Warhammer Fantasy Battles. It was either the first or second edition for Miniature War Games magazine back in the day. Uh, because I was fed up with the magazine never covering anything to do with science fiction and fantasy. And we were quite, our little, the group I was a part of were quite into Warhammer Fantasy Battles, uh, first and second edition. I mean, that, that really does age me, doesn't it? Mm. And uh, I, wrote a, I wrote a review and they published it and everything. Um, but I kind of dropped out when they went into the third edition because I enjoyed the small skirmish aspects of the first two editions of Warhammer. Mm-hmm. And then they started to go to bigger and bigger units. And if you know me, uh, if you've seen my painting of models and stuff, I, I've got armies, you know, I've got quite big armies, but, um, I'm not really one into painting a unit of a hundred figures just for one unit. You know, a right. hundred figures to me would be the whole army mm-hmm. uh, that I'd want to put down on the battlefield. So, yeah. So, Fazer, Battletech, Battle Droids. Uh, my I, my friends Pat and Bill Foster used to own a war game shop in South End on Sea in Essex, uh, which is east of London. That's all you probably need to know. It's like the extended east end of London. And um, I got to know them and we used to play games. And because they were a game shop, uh, they started importing games from America that weren't available through normal distributors. Uh, mm-hmm. over here. Battle Droids was one of those games. I was big into Fazer at the time because they did Star Trek, the role-playing game, which was a oh, yeah. fabulous system. And Traveller, of course. And Traveller was my first... RPG that I got really invested in, um, mm-hmm. though Striker, which was the tabletop wargaming rules for that that universe, were were a nightmare. I mean, they were great. I mean, <laughs> you know, but they were a nightmare to try and get anybody else to play with. Some of the ideas were very groundbreaking, but poorly implemented. Um, there was too much um, friction where it didn't need to be in the game. You want friction in games, you know, decision points. Do I do this? Do I do that? Which generates friction. Um, But if the friction becomes, uh, gets in the way of the fun, then, you you know, and and for Striker, um, I thought the whole command control system was really good, but the amount of, work it took to play the game with those mechanisms made the game not really a lot of fun and there are easier ways of doing that so but that's that that's just a bit of the background um i mean i've played dnd as well i played the original a friend of mine got the original white book and we played that back probably within a year of it coming out in america mm-hmm. um and uh but it never appealed to me as much as science fiction did because it 
because of the fantasy I don't get me wrong I like fantasy stuff but my first game I was a hobbit uh, in D&D and uh, I used the bold a uh, uh, bag of holding that I'd managed to acquire during the game um, to escape phase spiders by basically holding uh, and jumping in the bag and holding the top and then being a different uh, and it, it was great don't get me wrong it was a fun 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 game but it, it's not my boat um, mm-hmm. I like technical stuff. I like machines. I mean, what interests me about warfare is how technology has changed the face of battle. So Battle Droids comes along, which is probably where you wanted me to be. Sorry to be digressing. No, um, I, this, this show is, is built on a foundation of digression. It's okay. <laughs> okay, well, you're going to get a lot of it from me. So Bill brought out this game from America, brought over this game from America. Uh, we played it and we kind of went, oh, yeah, that's, that's not bad. But, you know, big stompy robots don't really get the um, the get the why. Yeah. And then uh, my friend Helen McCarthy, who's a big anime fan, uh, brought to a, a convention, a science fiction convention, um, some basic Robotech stuff, which I don't know what year that was, probably 86, maybe 85, 86, I don't know. Uh, they were, because um, back in the day, you couldn't get this stuff commercially. It was, uh, and it was, and when I say it's Robotech, it was really Macross, mm-hmm. uh, the Japanese, because it was all in Japanese. And she showed that at this convention, and I went, ah, that's what Battletech's about. And it kind of made sense. Mm-hmm. And then Battletech, the second edition, came out. I got myself I got myself a copy of Battle Droids too, and but the second edition came out and and it just took off from there. And um I was involved with a, a war game role-playing group and a club that, you know, lots of stuff, and we used to run games and and bits and pieces and then you know me being me it was like oh what else can i do with this and you know design my own battle mechs and i wrote a fanzine uh called mech tech m-e-k-t-e-k um and it had a cover by steve kite uh who's a quite well-known artist uh over this side of the atlantic and uh, i sent a copy to fazer and uh, Sam Lewis wrote back and said, oh, thanks for the, you know, really like your magazine, um, you know. Um, and I just started a correspondence. And this was probably in 86, eight, uh, no, 88. Was it 88? Yeah, 88, 1988. I had this correspondence with Sam Lewis from Faza. And I, I wrote him and said, look, um, I'd like to do a TRO, a technical readout for you. And here's my idea. I'd like to do support equipment, not mechs. I, I just wanted to do a whole book. I had this idea, mad though it was, mm-hmm. for lots of support equipment, you know, uh, mech transporters, minefield clearers, bridging units, different tanks, that and he he wrote back very nice he said yeah we don't normally allow just one person to do a tro it's usually a a, a group effort uh mm-hmm. he said would you like to be part of uh, 
writing a, a TRO. And I said, yeah, sure. He said, okay, I'll get back to you. And, uh, and I got this offer to, uh, would I like to write for the TRO 3055, which was the second clan book, because the, the first clan book uh, come out. And uh, I was asked, um, what faction would I like to do? And I said to uh, uh, Black Mike, who was the uh, guy who was the main uh, compiler for the book, I said, well, I, I'd like to do um, the clan second line mechs. And he said, oh, thank God, he says, because nobody else wants to do those. <laughs> I said, yeah, well, why not? Because, you know, they're, the class, they're going to be the classic designs from the first book. Surely if it's the Star League going out, you know, the clans would have had to have basically done their own versions of all the classic mechs. Obviously, they didn't give me all the classic mechs to do. They just gave mm -hmm. me the ones that appear in the, the 3055 book. And I, you know, uh, Mike sent me over, Mike Nice called Black Mike. Uh, there's two nice stalls, but anyway. Um, and I had the artwork, and I had some very brief guidelines. Uh, this was in the days when you had to use a modem um, oh, to yeah. communicate. And, uh, you know, this is really old, uh, you know, CompuServe. Uh, yeah, CompuServe. And we exchanged basically faxes through... The, uh, through the then uh, by modem through the through the bulletin boards, and uh, the only thing they said was basically uh, there's these four designs that are going to be um, clan steel viper or clan diamond shark I forget which those so one of those two, and they would want them optimized for arena combat. Uh, the, the, uh, not specifically for the Solaris rules, but if you could make them optimised so that if you were using them in the Solaris rules, they would be the best of the best. Mm -hmm. And then I was given free reign to do anything I wanted with uh, stat-wise uh, with the other designs. And uh, I'd been, this was uh, circa 89-90, that kind of time. And uh, I'm a bit of a computer freak as well. I mean, uh, I used to run, used to do desktop publishing and I knew how to use spreadsheets, which wasn't a given back in those days. Oh, yeah. And I'd already loaded all the Battletech rules into a spreadsheet so I could optimize and, and I already knew where the optimal weight uh, speed cutoffs were. So I just sat all those designs into those optimal slots. And then I um, made the best mechs I could make with the available technology that was given to us at the time. They've obviously added a whole lot of other stuff since. Sent back the rules and I had to write color text. Um, I think the, the, the specification was 1,200 words of color text for each of the designs, which I also did. Oh, wow. Um, and I, I delivered all that pretty much on schedule. And Mike thanked me and said, you know, you're the only one who has delivered it all on schedule with 1,200 words per whatever. And we've had to revise um, 
our, our specifications because most of our writers haven't been able to deliver the text. So we're going to have to edit out a lot of what you wrote. Mm. I said, fine, you know, it's not my IP, uh, intellectual properties, you know, I'm just happy to do it, happy to get paid. And I met, I met Sam and uh, Rob and Jordan over in Milwaukee at the 1991 uh, Gen Con there, uh, where I was on uh, the British Tech uh, team for a, a tournament where we lost by, a, I don't know, couple of points mm -hmm. uh the grand tournament um but it was a whole heap of fun and it was a great time in my life and i kind of later learned that had i been an american citizen and lived you know in america they might have actually employed me um to work on on the BattleTech line but it wasn't to be so you know i went away and wrote my own set of rules so has I answered your question or rambled enough? Oh, that's that's definitely like I said. We've we've definitely established your veteran wargamer bona fides to say the least, and <laughs> and I appreciate that. I mean, it's you know, it's it's easy to have a show with someone like you where I'm not having to continually continually prod for more, you know, more more more. So I appreciate that. Uh, I think before we get too much further into it um we do need for for if for some reason folks don't know what a mech or a mecha is we should probably define or describe explain and provide examples of of what a mech or a mecha is so as as the as the guest, I'll let you take the lead on that, and well, the subject matter expert, to say the least. Uh, so, in, in your view, what is a mech or a mecha? Well, it's one of those portmanteau words that the Japanese created. Um, we need to kind of jump back to my very early childhood um, and Jerry Anderson shows. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not. I'm not sure how well known it is, but Japan really took to the Jerry Anderson Thunderbirds and Cetra shows. And the term they came up to describe all those super machines like Thunderbird 2s, you know, etc., were mecha. But in Japan, mecha just means mechanical. It's just, it's, it's Japlish, um, if you'll pardon me for using such a term but it's that japanese english mashup that uh, the japanese are so good at like jumbo jetta uh, we have mecha and the japanese were also interested in things like starship troopers you know they they were interested in western culture which is unsurprising uh, given the history of japan and the defeat and uh, the occupation of Japan by American uh, forces. Mm -hmm. um, so from there, they, they, they kind of ran with it. Um, now, Mecca existed before um, Jerry Anderson. You know, uh, we have uh, lots of classic Japanese animation shows um, with, with 
robot boys and giant robots and stuff. And it was the mashup of Starship Troopers with Jerry Anderson and that sort of Japanese cultural um, samurai knights as robots that produced Mecha. And you've got things like Bazinga and uh, uh, Geta Roba. I think it's Geta Roba um, and the such, mm-hmm. you know, that began. So that's. That's kind of where the seeds of Mecca, you know, where, where the seeds were planted and it grew. And then I think the big turning point was the real robo shows. Uh, Mobile Suit Gundam is arguably the first um, real robo show where they treated the robots as something real, as a machine that was piloted rather than as sort of a, a, a story MacGuffin, right. you know, that the hero has to save the world, um, it became its own thing. And, uh, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's where uh, the roots of it lie. So from there, you Gundam, um, you have uh, my two favourite shows, which is Fang of the Sun Dugram, uh, which is uh, a 79-80 episode um, story of a revolution on a colony using uh, a prototype giant robot mecha called Dugramu, Dugram in English, and uh, and child fighters. If, if you can get hold of a, uh, catch a dub, you know, across the internet, I, I, I do recommend taking your time. It, it's obviously very old now, 1980s, uh, 82, 83, I think. Mm-hmm. But it's a great, it has battle tech. Once you understand, once you've seen Dugram, you understand exactly the sort of shows that uh, the Faza people were watching because it, it, it it's all there, you know, it, it's all the bits and pieces that we now recognise. And then obviously there's Macross, which became part of the Robotech franchise. Right. Um, which is again justified the giant robots as well. This is what we need to fight giant aliens. I mean, okay, that's a bit crazy, but I can run with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have people like the creator of Machin Krieger, um, who look more back to Starship Troopers and the Western style of stuff to create a more Western aesthetic of Mecca. So, yeah, um, you know, Starship Troopers is a big part of this, but Starship Troopers itself wasn't the first power armor um, appearance in, in novels. You, 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 can, you can find them in uh, the Lensman series by E. Doc Smith from the 1930s. I mean, not, not giant robots. Right. But... They had space armor, you know, <clears throat> power armor that you could go in and use your space axe and slay thousands of evil aliens. Yeah, I think there's you, you hit on something there a moment ago when you mentioned that it's it is a machine piloted by a human. And I think that's an important yeah. distinction for from mech as opposed to just a giant robot, right? I know we call them giant stompy robots, but you know, when, when 
I think where most of us talk about a mech or mecha or whatever, whichever term you prefer to use, there there is a person or multiple people in the case of uh, like the Pacific Rim uh, movies. You've got two people involved in the in the uh, maneuvering of, of these machines to well knows in that case to fight kaiju which are if you're not familiar with kaiju it's dear listener it's a giant stompy monster <laughs> um, it's godzilla yeah godzilla and mothra and mecha got well there's mecha godzilla but we already established that mecha in japanese just means something mechanical so it's mechanical godzilla but uh, I, I certainly remember in the 70s being a, a young kid, and I forget I forget what the English version of it was, but the, the original term, or the original title was uh, Mazinger Z, and I remember having a big Mazinger uh, toy. Oh gosh, it was probably two feet tall, and it had arms that moved and, and that sort of thing, and... I was 12 the first time I saw Robotech, and it was on in the morning uh, on Channel 62 in Kansas City, and I got up, you know, I got up early to every morning to watch it, which people who know me know I'm, I'm not typically a morning person. I, I, I've, I developed strategies to cope with, <laughs> with the morning, thanks to my service in the, in the army, but, uh, it it just blew me away, and and ever since then I've been a fan of various mech and mecha type things. And the anyone who knows anyone who knows me knows I am I'm more in, inclusionary or inclusionist or however you want to put it when it comes to trying to define things. So I've got a pretty I'm willing to call uh, I'm willing to call some things mechs that other people might not necessarily I, I do recognize that there is a limit at some point like where is the limit between power armor and a mech for example uh some examples i'm thinking of from anime for example are uh maddox zero one metal skin panic are you familiar with that one absolutely loved that and saw it back in the day yeah absolutely fabulous um it would be one of my, again, one of my favorites, um, along with uh, Armored Trooper Votoms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah, Maddox. Yeah, I mean, we saw Maddox, I forget when, but it would have been in the 80s. And uh, it was like, wow, yes, this is great. And I consider Power Armor to be Mecha. So yeah, no, all cool. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, because then that definitely brings in, you mentioned Machine and Krieger, which is, uh, probably about the same time that I saw Robotech. Um, I saw my first Machine and Krieger or MAK, uh, or SF3D or whatever term you, you want to use. Cause there's been plenty applied to. Yeah. It was SF3D kits that we saw. We, I mm -hmm. don't, is there a show? I don't know if there's a show. Um... I did do a little bit of research before, before the episode and, it started out as a series of articles in Hobby Japan magazine. And yeah. uh, a gentleman, I, f I forget his name at the moment, but a gentleman was making kit bashing these armored suits out of 135th scale World War II tank kits. And 
he they were running a series of articles and eventually um nitto uh started making kits of these of these designs and it also included uh robotic tanks and walkers and, and things of that ilk and that's that's where it got its start now there's there is actually a show an sf3d show on youtube it's about a 27 minute episode and it's about a single uh, armored suit trooper going up against uh going up against some nut rocker or nutcracker uh robot tanks and it's its production values are they're definitely limited <laughs> but but it's it's a neat little story and it's worth checking out and i'll, I'll actually i will go ahead and put a sh- link in the show notes right now for anyone who wants to go and take a look at that um and now at, you know since then i mean there's just been an explosion of kits in various scales and what's what I think is particularly interesting about it is a very much a Western aesthetic coming from uh, Japan with those. And uh, it's, it's cool. And, and there is, I forget who, but I have seen, there is a company that is making or is starting to make, or is going to release, however you want to put it, the SF3D stuff in 15 millimeter. Yep. Yeah. For gaming um, purposes. Absolutely. I, I've got them somewhere. The, uh, for those, uh, maybe I'll uh, find it and post a link to you so you can put it on the show notes. But yeah, absolutely. Um, so since since we are talking about what a mech is or isn't, I, I, I would go so far as to say if we look at Star Wars, the AT-AT and the ATST are... They are mechs. Absolutely. Are, uh, no arguments from us here. Especially since the there's a... Which one is it in Battletech that looks very suspiciously... Well, the, I guess the Jenner looks... Maybe there's one called a Flea, maybe also? Or I, Raven I and the Flea. Uh, yeah. Not the, yeah, the Flea. Definitely the, the, the Flea. So yeah. that, that definitely counts, you know? And... Um, some other we already mentioned Thunderbirds and Starship Troopers. If we are talking armored suits, there's uh, the novel Armor by John Stakely is, is fantastic. And yep. speaking, it's a classic. It, it it's definitely a classic is. Novel. And and speaking as a combat veteran, it it definitely touches on the the experience of a combat veteran after combat. Um, so I think it's definitely worth taking a look at from that perspective as well. Not just a, a nifty story about killing bugs, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no. Um, yeah. I was going to say, look, you know, you, you do know, I, I, I did mention in passing that they did an animation, uh, OVA, original video animation of Starship Troopers in Japan. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. 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 And uh, <clears throat> I think the Maddox that we were talking about also fits into that aesthetic. It's definitely mm-hmm. that Western stuff, uh, that Western aesthetic as seen through the eyes of Japanese artists. It's, it's rather fascinating. 
Yeah, I, it's. I I need to get out and, and find that uh, that Starship Troopers anime. I'm sure it's on it's on YouTube, but it's, it's definitely worth looking at. And uh, Maddox Zero One is very, and it's got a great sense of humor about it. Also, you know, when the <laughs> the kid's stuck in the suit or the guy's stuck in the suit and he's trying to eat dinner with these <laughs> use chopsticks with these uh, mechanical arms. It's, it's pretty, I think it's pretty humorous anyway. Um, it is pretty humorous. I, I, I'd have no, I, and it's not only humorous, it's fun. Mm-hmm. It, it's, you know, it, the humor comes not from being comedy per se, but it's the, the way the comedic elements arise from the situation. Yeah, no, it's, it, I, I love it. I mean, it's it's just, uh, um, it's just inspirational. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I, I being a being a gaming podcast, I think we would be remiss, and I think what we ought to do is start talking about some of the games that are out there that you know allow us to recreate some of these situations and play around with some of these technologies and the thing about a met game and if you're following along with the show notes i know that uh i put this after after the types of games but i think we ought to talk about why why would we play met games obviously you've got you know if you're just simply inspired by watching robotech for example or any of the other anime shows or Jerry Anderson's Thunderbirds, for example, you know, aside from, aside from that sort of thing, you've also got, uh, for the most part, most of these games are relatively a low model count, for example. Um, usually you're looking at a single player having somewhere between three and six models, which is, uh, you know, you'd mentioned earlier, you know, having hundred of you know a hundred models on 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 a single force or for a single unit, and and this takes it to the opposite, or this has a potential to take it the opposite direction. Um, do you would you agree with that as a as an appeal? I, I certainly see it as an appeal, especially if someone like me who's very slow in their painting. Um, <laughs> I, I know I've been showing some. I've been sharing pictures recently on Twitter of a large batch of uh, uh, spacecraft that I'm working on from the uh, Plastic Soldier Company's Red Alert game. Uh, you know, I'm doing those in a, in a batch fashion, 15 at a time, for example. But uh, anyway, um, so yeah, I, I think that that's definitely in... In, in the game's favor what what's your i, I guess okay. i should say where what are the where are the limits right how what are the biggest games you've seen because i've seen met games down to you know a player has a single model well that's yeah I, yeah i'm glad you glad you asked that question because that's a really good one i like most players started with BattleTech and you know one mech two mechs they're great games. And then you get out to four, five, or six mechs, and the game just grinds to an absolute halt mm-hmm. uh, in terms of 
how many turns you can process in an hour. And it is about how many turns you can process in an hour that limits the size of any games. Now, I enjoy the small, crunchy games. Don't get me wrong. I think they're great. But there's that thing I find in pretty much all old-time Battletech players who want to play the company, who want to play the battalion, who want to put the regiment down onto the onto the table. And Battletech in its classic form doesn't allow that. Mm-hmm. Now, back in the day, and you know, this is back in the 1980s, uh, Faza did something called Battle Force, which was, if you like, the historic precursor to their current alpha rules uh, that, they, that they do. And um, the problem I had with Battle Force was not the game mechanics, which I thought were fine, was the fact that they reduced uh, each counter represented a a lance or you know four mechs four or five mechs and i'm kind of if i'm playing with miniatures i want one miniature to equal one miniature I'm, i'm not a big fan of higher level games where you have a stand uh you know with three or four miniatures that represents a platoon I say I'm not a fan. I play those games, but they don't they don't scratch that itch that the model make. And I'm primarily oh I say primarily, I'm not primarily anything. Um I like models and I like my toys to mean things. And you may have heard of somebody called Paddy Griffiths, who was um a military historian and war mm-hmm. gamer, worked for Sandhurst and he was fairly anti-toy soldiers and I, i'm very much a, i love to- my toy soldiers i love my toys that my little dolls you know my little figures the people you know i'm a bit of a fantasist in that respect um and by that i mean you know i i enjoy feeding my imagination you know that these are i'm in I'm in the seat of that of that battle mech. I am the pilot piloting that battle mech, and I am being the hero of my own narrative. Right, and that's I think where uh, that that frisson of whatever it is that BattleTech offers appeals. That's what mm-hmm. what makes it so appealing. But then there's that other side where I said, you know, we all get to the stage of, wouldn't it be great? If not only we could put this lance of battle mechs down, we could put some infantry down and some tanks down. And how about oh, some yeah. air support? Um, and BattleTech, uh, there are ways of um, streamlining the play for BattleTech. Um, and everybody in their dog, as far as I know, um, comes up with some methods, you know, boxes of. Uh, Dice where you have a, a box, a, a, pers- a clear perspex box with lots of uh, little containers and each one has a dice and you shake the box, put the thing down and then read all the results off from one shake of the dice for mm-hmm. a, a umpty number of uh, results. Um, but there's still a lot of processing in the Battletech rules because of the way the game was designed. 
Right. Now, if you try and flip that and design a game um, where you can play multiple units, and for example, I think the classic quick play large number of units on the table game from a board game perspective would be the Steve Jackson Ogre Gev systems, which I don't know if you played. Have you played those? Oh, yes, absolutely. I, uh, <clears throat> it, it's, it's one of those games that is very fast to play. Uh, it's very simple mechanisms, and simple mechanisms doesn't necessarily make for a simple game, if that makes sense. You, you can have some pretty deep yeah. gameplay. Um, and that, that is definitely a classic. And I, I, I don't know if it's a testament to the longevity of the system necessarily, but I, I think at this point it's been released. It's been released in different forms. I think at this point, probably five or six times. It's six, um, it's six stroke seventh edition at this particular well, there point. You go, yeah. Um, you know. I, I had a I, I had a sizable ogre collection at one point, and I, for you know, of course, I'm kicking myself because I sold it off. But um, no, I had, you know, I had upwards of, oh gosh, how many did I have? Yeah, between the different marks, because I had all kind. Well, more than twenty, certainly. <laughs> And um, had a few of the official. Uh, I had a few of the official vehicles for it, but most of my vehicles that I actually used in the game were uh, another FASA product uh, from Renegade Legion. Yeah, yeah. Which is another great game. A, and a I'm great consider... game. Sorry, I interrupted you. Carry no, it, definitely not a met game, but definitely worth talking about in the. Yeah, at another time, but uh, so uh, again, here's one of those classic digressions because ogres are certainly not mechs, but <laughs> but yeah, yeah, the the rules are definitely Bad fast enough where you can process uh, you can process the just the sim you know simply the the moving, shooting, and communicating of of units in a relatively relatively quick manner. And I would consider ogres to be mecha, which may may be a bit um, heretical. But <laughs> from from the Japanese would certainly consider them mecha. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, no, you know, no legs and not being piloted by a human kind of. It, it does take it out of my definition of a mecha, but you know, I'm I, I'm not the only person that gets to have an opinion on this. No. Yeah, I mean, it's very, I mean, from a Japanese perspective, it would definitely sure. be a mecha, you know, yeah. because Jerry Anderson's machines are mecha, you know, the crab, not crab a logger, um, there was a walking um, tank in one of the Thunderbirds uh, that gets, uh, falls down a, a crater in the Af uh, South American jungles or something, Um episodes i'm trying to think what it was called uh it wasn't the crabber logger because the crabber logger was the the machine that was making roads and stuff and going through stuff and they had to go and rescue it because that's what thunderbirds did they went and rescued um uh machines that got um too uh 
got into trouble. So yeah, um, definitely something. Uh, so yeah, it's a bit heretical, but I definitely consider cyber tanks, uh, even though they don't have people um, crewing them to be mecha. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I think I, th- I think there's you mentioned earlier, you know, the, the, the crunchy approach to a lot of mech gaming. It's definitely one of those things where the, the player who likes to play with the differences in weapon systems, whether that's mm-hmm. effects or how the mechanisms in the game actually approach them, it's a good place to, to play around with that because, you know, a, a laser might affect a, a target differently than some type of kinetic weapon, for example. And, yeah. uh, you know, Battletech's heat tracking is part of that, right? So, you know, a machine gun, if I recall correctly, basically doesn't produce any heat, but, you know, and an autocannon's not as bad as, say, a laser for generating heat, for example. And, and that's the type of thing that when you do have one or two models or even three or four models per player, you can play around with some of those things and because those are decisions that an individual mech pilot would have to worry about. Whereas when you start getting into, like I said, the Battle Force game or I guess they call it Alpha Strike now, uh, you wouldn't necessarily worry yourself with those decisions being a, uh, a Lance or a company commander. So there, there's definitely some, there's some appeal there, I would think, as well. Absolutely. And, uh, and what happens, I think, is that people have, because of Battletech is the 800-pound gorilla in the room, everybody kind of assumes that mecha games have to be like Battletech. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a bit sad, Uh because I think Mech Warrior, which was their alternate click game, was in some ways a much nicer game to play, except it had problems with the, um, the collectible miniatures part of it and the right. uh, power upgrades that happened as a result of that, um, which unfortunately kind of broke the game. And then the marketing of it, made it unattractive for certain people. I only got into Mech Warrior Dark Age when it all uh, collapsed and everything was being sold off cheap. And I, I had a lot of fun buying lots of stuff cheaply, mm-hmm. you know, and I have very large numbers of click tech mechs uh, in the flat uh, because why wouldn't you when you can buy them for a pound a box? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's one of the appeals to a certain degree of being being a dead game gamer, right? So, <laughs> yeah. When, and I just remembered the name of the mecha in um, Thunderbirds. It was called the Sidewinder. Okay. Yeah, and it was a walking, um, four-legged walking uh, weapons platform for the U.S. Army of all things. Well, I'm sure if it was for the U.S. Army, it was it was drastically over budget when it was procured and came in late, also. But 
<laughs> yeah, I'm probably that, bigger and doing more stuff because you know that 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 just riffs on the whole Bradley, doesn't it? I mean, oh uh... yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you've never seen the movie Pentagon Wars uh, about the development of the Bradley fighting vehicle, it's definitely it's definitely worth checking out. We we I we checked it out the other week. In fact, yeah. um, I'd seen snippets, but I actually sat down and watched the whole movie, and it, it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, for fun that is uh, yeah 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 it was fun as a viewer it wasn't necessarily fun for the people concerned mm. to say the least to say the least so well i i think i think it's it's a good time to kind of talk about some of the games and some of the differences in those games uh that are available and out there and maybe talk about some some miniatures also that may not be tied to a particular game, uh, but are still that are still out there. Um, so, of course, you mentioned the eight hundred pound gorilla, which is BattleTech and Mech Warrior. That's uh, it's the like I said, it's the eight hundred pound gorilla, and it's kind of the template for these types of games because they're. I think when you talk about playing with a single mech or a lance of mechs. You know, there aren't many games out there that don't have some gameplay elements of Battletech. I think it's fair to say. And I don't mean stuff like rolling dice. I'm talking like the 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 hit location chart, for example. Yeah. You know, on on a, on a certain level, most mech games at that tactical level do have that, for example. So um we could have an entire episode just on BattleTech. I'm sure you know talking about its history, starting like you said uh, with Battle Droids, and then Lucasfilm sent a cease and desist, I think, to FASA for using the word "droid" because that was a copyrighted and protected term. Then they came up with BattleTech. Well, there's all sorts of IP issues with BattleTech. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think FASA should have challenged. Uh, Lucas, because droid is just really a short for, for Android and shouldn't really be trademarkable. But obviously <clears throat> that requires more cash than than somebody with a very lot of cash to, to do that. And it didn't happen. And therefore we are left in the state that we are left. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if I'd been there, I wouldn't have called it Battletech. I would have called it Battlemech. Because that more accurately describes what Battletech does. It's a it's a game mm-hmm. of mech warfare. And right. As soon as you start to uh, expand the parameters to allow infantry and uh, tanks and other stuff and artillery, um, the mechs come off very poorly. Um, there are ways around that. Um, But they kind of they're kind of what I call rule exploits, edge rules. So, for instance, if you're facing a vehicle force which has you know large numbers of very fast hovercraft or tanks or whatever, uh, the mechs can be hard pushed to to cope with them. And one of the ways around that is to use inferno rounds, and instead of firing at the vehicle you fire at the hex that the vehicle is in, which is very easy to hit. And then you get the vehicle um, on the side effects of the heat because vehicles don't handle heat. 
um, like uh, a mech can shrug off, for shrug off, I mean, the inferno hits, it causes a, an effect, and the mech has heat sinks and it can deal with the effects, right. whereas vehicles don't have heat sinks, largely, if I remember correctly. I mean, they might have changed. I haven't kept up with all the latest versions of the rules. Uh, so therefore, if it overheats, it, it has an adverse effect upon the vehicle. Mm-hmm. But uh, back in the late 80s, uh, my friend Glenn Warbridge and I sat down and uh, we worked through all this stuff together. And you can totally wipe out a, a uh, mech force using hovercraft. Um, if you design custom hovercraft with um, uh, uh, particle beam cannons or large lasers, they go so fast, they're really hard to hit. They can just circle round the mechs and the mechs mm-hmm. just become, you know, it's a turkey shoot. Um, right. <clears throat> which is why Glenn and I, I sat down and said, look, uh, I, I actually did a conversion of Battle Force to begin with. Um, and what I did with Battle Force was I, instead of making the counters <clears throat> for mechs, I... I jiggered the construction rules so you could produce the stats for a single mech. So we play-tested our version of Battle Force and we had ran a couple of very good games. Um, but it kind of suffers from it. It's not Battletech. It, it kind of loses some of the flavour of what we've been talking about, that sort of you know, accounting for the weapons, the effects of the weapons. And eventually, we, we, I sat down and said, right, I've had enough of this. Um, I wrote a, a set of rules called Onmu War Machine. And Onmu was a, a play on the Nausicaa anime, where Onmu, in this case, stood for oversized, heavy, mechanized units. And I, had, we, I came up with a whole sort of uh, semi-plausible explanation for why large mechs existed mm-hmm. which was to do with the technology of the armor which was foam steel and because it was foam steel it was very light but to, to have the uh, the effect to work as the armor you wanted it you had to have a lot of it and therefore it bulked all the vehicles up as soon as you put foam steel on your tanks they became like four times the size and then a mech is not so implausible because it has to be that size because of the armor. Uh, but that game unfortunately flopped um, due to distributor issues amongst many other things. Uh, so it never really took off. But uh, it was something that interested me and in that the rules were um, focused on command and control. And again, it was a different game. It wasn't a mech game. It was a game of future warfare and i'm currently working on a set of rules called big little wars where um i'm going running with my obsession with command and control and imagining what a a fairly plausible for argument arguably not that plausible ideas but semi-plausible what would the future battlefield look like if we had power armor, uh, exoskeletons uh, inspired by Edge of Tomorrow, uh, lived, I 
repeat um, with the Tom Cruise movie and Emily Blunt, plausible power armor and mini mechs that are inspired by Votoms, which are, you know, 12 to 14 foot tall, and that, you know, which is quite big in the real terms, but in mech terms is very small. Right. And justifying their use as uh, platforms they use for urban and difficult terrain where you know tanks have a difficulty going and you're going to be using them instead of helicopters because they can carry more armor and they can change posture so you know one thing that realistically a mech could do that a tank can't is go prone or kneel you know there there is something it can offer and if you imagine a future battlefield where you have um, uh, all the point defense systems countermeasures that are currently being rolled out on abrams and other uh, vehicles um, iron uh, steel shield is it the, uh, the israeli one and Mm-hmm. It's going to become, and I know they're, they're working on this, but it's quite a toxic environment for a, a poor old infantryman to be around a tank that is spewing out countermeasures, active countermeasures, against incoming missiles and bombs, etc. So you want to armour your infantry. Well, if you're going to armour your infantry, you want as mo- much bang for your buck as you you can get and there's kind of a space for a plausible mini mech uh, so and which i also feature in my novels which we've kind of mentioned in passing and probably come back to uh, in a future conflict uh, battle which would produce a different game uh, experience and battle tech and probably not as um, enticing because it's more about the bigger picture but right. there you go. No, I, I definitely think there's there's room for that type of approach to a mech game. And, and one thing that, you know, I, I kind of wanted to talk about the plausibility of mechs later on, but I, I will hit on it now that since you mentioned it, you know, uh, and this is something that a friend of mine, hello, Joel, if, if you're listening, uh, <laughs> he makes fun <laughs> of me for is, you know, if you take a look at the mechs like the Votoms and Gundam and Heavy Gear, which I know you're a huge fan of, uh, you know, having having prehensile ta- hands allows a mech to swap out its armament on the battlefield. Yeah. You know, if, if it has some type of mechanical issue or runs out of ammunition, you know, it allows the the operator to swap out its armament for for whatever reason and i I think definitely at a at the smaller you know we mentioned maddox zero one earlier i think that's going to be a a huge advantage in the machine and krieger you know they show you know the the sf3d and ak models a lot of them have uh weapons that they're carrying uh you know like panzer fausts and and similar types of weapons just, just by way of example. So there's, there's definitely something there. Um, now, some other games that I think we could definitely talk about. I mentioned Heavy Gear. 
uh, DreamPod 9 up in up in Canada, which is kind of an interesting... Ah, oh, that stupid thing's going to be beeping. Hold on one second. Be right back. Sure. <clears throat> Okay. Um, the heavy gear is in that smaller mech, uh, 12 to 20 feet tall kind of space. And uh, now I, I know based on, based on what you've been showing on Twitter, what you've been painting recently, you're, you're a big heavy gear fan yourself. And not just a heavy gear fan, you like the OG, the original Rafam 187th scale stuff. And, I, I, and I, am, I am right there with you. I love those are, and I'm going to, I'm going to set my foot down. I'm planting my flag. This is a hill I'm going to die on. Those original 187th Rafam heavy gear models are the best mech models, designs and, and models ever produced expressly for gaming. I would agree. Um, they also have the advantage that Whilst they were made for 187th, which is 3.5 mil to the foot scale conversion, my model making hat coming on here. Yeah, it's um, also it's also HO train scale. Yeah, HO train scale. Um, they don't they fit in so well with 3 mil 15, uh, 3 mil to the foot 1 100th scale 15 mil war gaming, mm-hmm. uh, which is why I'm using them. Because I, whilst I think the Raffin were definitely the, there's something about them that the models that are really nice. The the new one forty fourth ones are also very nice. The ones that Philip uh, Clark uh, de Clark um, sculpted are very nice. But the trouble with DP nine, I, I don't mean this in a disparaging way, is that they're you know. A, a smallish company and they make most of their money i guess from the the mech miniatures and what they don't have from my perspective is choice of infantry mm-hmm. they have some infantry but the poses are limited and and what i want is some proper power armor in 12 million you're not going to get it you know, not not. There's not much choice. You, you can probably find something. I know I've looked, but all the best choices for 15 mil power armor are in 15 mil. You know. Yeah. You know, GZG, Curasan, you name it. There is a cornucopia of choice, uh, aesthetically, uh, for somebody working in 15 mil um, to do. Uh, to, to field power armor units to go with your mechs. Because mm-hmm. I think the two have to go together. Um, this is very much a personal perspective. You know, I don't expect anybody to agree, but I'm past the stage where I just want mechs on the table. Right. I, I want mechs and infantry. By infantry, I mean power armor. Um, because I think that the, 
the combination. You know, you have the big guy and his little guy buddies helping him. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want to see. That's what interests me. Because, again, I've my set of rules, my background, which is um, trying to put onto the tabletop the world of Gatewalker universe. It's all about battles in adverse uh, environments like built up cities or in mountains where you need that flexibility. So that's what I want. Um, And that's the only reason really that I went to the Raffin miniatures. But when I got there, I found they were absolutely lovely. I mean, they're they're big enough and they're chunky and you can work with them and you can cut them apart and you can repose them and you can magnetize all the joints, as you've probably seen on my Twitter feed. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it makes them semi-posable. So, again, that for me, being that I'm the toy soldier person, you know, um, gives them play value, which is, you know, a tactile play value, as in you can pose them for pictures uh, for, for uh, war games and it just adds a little bit of verisimilitude uh, to, to, the, to the product you know the photo at the end of the day that you, you you've taken and I'm photography is another one of my hobbies yeah uh, they're they're just great models I, I've when they came out I was because this would have been what 98 99 when heavy gear first came out um i kind of i forgot if i saw them in a magazine or, or where exactly i saw them you know this is not quite pre-internet but there wasn't much on the internet and maybe i saw them on the internet or something and my my local game shop uh allowed me to basically to order <laughs> You know, I put in an order for the retail starter. <laughs> it was it, it was one of everything. Um, and I had one of everything, and I started putting them together. And some years later, like an idiot, of course, I sold them off. And I've gotten back in contact with a guy who I, who I sold them to and said, hey, I'd like to buy those back, you know, for, for what I, you know, we made an agreement that, you know, I'll, I'll get, you know, I gave him back the money that <laughs> he sold them to me for, and and now he can't find them. But it's neither here nor there. And every once in a while, I have problems. Say, hey, any luck with with finding those? But yeah, they're they're absolutely great models, and like you said, they're ultimately posable. And and when you are down at that level, at that you know one one player with two or three models, you know, you, you do want the torso twist and. You know the the heavier models, the one eight seventh anyway. If you if you are smart with some magnetization, allows you to do that. Yeah, it certainly does. And I yeah. missed all the heavy gear original uh, stuff. I mean, I I remember going into my local hobby shop, which was Orcs Nest, because I was in London at that time. Um, but I wasn't really into my. I was had fallen out of the hobby completely because I was training to be a mental health nurse and that was three years and that was right 96 to 99. And as soon as I qualified, I started training to be a cognitive behavioral therapist. And that took me through to 
2004. So there's basically 1996 to 2004. I did no wargaming. I bought no models because I had no time because all my focus was either on my job or my studies to advance my career. Uh, right. So I came came to the whole heavy gear. Well, I was late to the party. I'm late to lots of parties in that respect, but I was very late to the party. Unlike Battletech, where I was right there at the beginning when they put out the original um, Battle Droids miniatures, which were awful, uh, in my opinion. That's a, I know that's not an opinion shared by my friend Zach, but uh, you know I much preferred the later Ral Partha um, reimaginings of the original Battle Droids that became you know the classics, the Shadowhawk, uh, Griffin, etc. Um, and of course, I've now had to go and well, not had to, but I've been driven uh, to pursue secondhand sales of. Uh, heavy gear on ebay and noble knight games and there are mm -hmm. some for sale on noble knight games if you're interested um yeah well, there's there's, there's I, plenty on there's plenty on ebay also but you gotta you gotta pick and choose who you buy from because there's a wide range of prices it looks yeah. like so but uh yeah and they'll uh, gouge you you know yeah and, and there's uh you know, again, Heavy Gear is one of those things we could talk about for for a very long time because there was there are multiple computer games, and they definitely have some. They've got some ideas on what vehicles should look like, but <laughs> that's, I'll just leave it at that. Um, yeah, they're a bit funky. I mean, yeah, they're almost as funky as some of the BattleTech vehicles, mm -hmm. which yeah. can be very funky. Now. DreamPod 9 also had a World War II or, or Weird War II uh, IP. I don't know if they're still doing it at all, called Gear Krieg, which yep. if you like your... And they, those came out as 15mm 1-100 from the get-go, uh, simply, I would imagine, because they wouldn't have to do all the real-world units at that point. You, can, you know, you've got your choice of, of infantry for sure. And those are some of those are pretty neat. They're semi-transforming they're semi also, because they're... Those mechs have a walker variant and a, I guess you'd call a wheeled or tracked variant that they can transform between depending on the terrain, which is which is an interesting concept. Uh, and some of those are pretty neat too. And I, I, I think the rules themselves are nearly identical. I don't know. I can't comment. Um, I've played... DreamPod 9, the older versions of Heavy Gear, and they've got a new edition, and the new edition, I think, is much better, as in the, the rules are more streamlined, they're, they're better written, they're, there's more clarity. Um, I, I've played a couple of games of the older versions of uh, Locked and Loaded, mm -hmm. um, and I, they gave me a headache, I'll be quite honest. Um mm. There was just too much of the wrong sort of friction in the games. Mm. Um, do you know what I mean when I say friction? It's a shorthand. Um, you have to have some friction in games. Otherwise, it's, it, it becomes checkers or dominoes, as we call it right. over here. But um, it's that balance between the mechanisms that make you make choices that you have to make the choices for 
and the inflammation of those uh, mechanisms and how they're what dice you roll and how you do it. And I find that some of the Dream Pod 9, well, in the old versions of the rules, what I find was it's jargon heavy in a way that doesn't help. Mm-hmm. It has mechanics that kind of makes, I mean, make perfect sense at one level, but the implementation of them at another becomes, there's too much friction. Am I, I'm rolling these two dice now. I've got my skill. If I get my skill, that's on one of those dice. That's great. And if I get a six, I get a bonus. Uh, but if I don't roll a six, oh, I just did my head in. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I want a simpler mechanic. Uh, I think the mechanic's good, but I think the implementation mechanic is, is, is has obscured um, right. the intent. And... Uh, and otherwise, I think, you know, Heavy Gear would be my choice of mech game now if nothing else existed. Right. But other stuff does exist, like Cav and obviously Games Workshop, which is the other 800-pound gorilla in the room. Yeah. Even yeah. though it's not a mech-centric um, game, it right. still has mecha in it. Yeah, and and that's the thing. They're the way that they've got these huge model kits now for the twenty eight mil. Well, I guess now it's thirty two mil scale, heroic scale, whatever term you want to use. You know, they've got mechs on the same table as individual infantrymen, and yeah. that that might be that might be a bridge too far for me. But uh, they they do have that option available, and of course, Adeptus Titanicus came out in the eighties with the biggest stompy robots, right? I mean, these are, you know, these these machines have multiple personnel for a crew and they're, you know, 100 meters tall and literally shake the ground miles away when they when they walk and that sort of thing. Um, and they've, they've brought back Adeptus Titanicus and the, the models are larger, larger, not just as models, but larger in scale also. Um, yeah, and, you know, there's there's plenty of other folks talking about GW, so... Yeah, we'll, we'll absolutely. Go, we'll, it, it's, folks, if you want to know about it, it's out there. <laughs> it is. It's out yeah. there, and we'll leave it at that. Um, you did mention Cav. Um, Cav is definitely in the Battletech uh kind of scale well not the miniature scale the miniatures are actually supposed to be 10 millimeter uh one 160th uh which is in scale trains another another uh, crossover with train scale and, and miniature scale um but again you're you are in the in the cockpit or running a platoon basically and those are some pretty streamlined rules um i've had the opportunity to play and actually i'm looking at a, a cab model that uh, my son was was painting uh, last night when we were, when we sat down to hobby together with with some friends, and uh, yeah, they're they're pretty nice models. I, I do wish um, the models themselves are are nice. They're they're kind of that soft plastic that uh, a lot of models are being made in these days. Um, the bones material, isn't it? I believe. What's that? Bones, they call it bones. It's the uh, 
Yeah, no, there's that, that what ring, ring a bell bones. Yeah, from uh, from Reaper. Yeah, yeah. That they, they, they caught. Uh, I I caught. I've got some of the old metal cabs, uh, which I I love. They're, they're really nice nice models, and mm -hmm. uh, they're very um, compatible with BattleTech or heavy gear. You know, they obviously become different size mecha depending which game you're playing. Right. And obviously, cockpits can be an issue um, if you're using them as uh, 12 mil, 10 mil, 12 mil mm -hmm. uh, heavy gear style mechs. Then, you know, some of the models may not be appropriate. Uh, you know, they don't look the part. But on the whole, no, they're, they're good designs. Um, yeah. I think the rules, again, suffer by being they're inevitably going to be uh, compared to Battletech. Right. And, you know, it, it's it's kind of the way of the world. I mean, for me, it's not an issue. I, I'm, 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 I'm sad misnomades. I, I, you know, I no longer have access to a war game club, um, especially during the COVID and stuff. Not that we want to talk about that, but... Even prior to that, London is a. Unless you're willing to travel, on uh, around London, uh, and it takes pretty much an hour to get anywhere, no matter how far it is or how near it is, um, and that comes with a cost. You know, not only of the time but also the money to to mm -hmm. travel around London. It's incredibly difficult to to hang out. Uh, at a club. Right. I'm not saying impossible, but it's very difficult. And the cost uh, for that is um, significant. Mm -hmm. And the amount of, you know, the pleasure you get, you know, if you go for an afternoon's game and you've taken two hours for the traveling there and back to begin with, on top of the game and then on top of the cost, you're starting even must be better ways of doing this so for me it, 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 it it's about uh, leveraging the internet so you know zoom war games oh, yeah. and solo war games you know because it's now especially with computers so ubiquitous you can either have rules that um, make the opposition play as if they're a player mm -hmm. or you can use some sort of computer aided program like XCOM did you know so you can play a game against the the bad guys right. uh, by yourself if necessary and uh, it's also a sign of getting older I think when you're young and you have lots of energy you're happy to spend whatever it takes to get to a game and have game and when to have the fun uh, when you're old like me and crotchety and it's get off get off my lawn you pesky kids um, <laughs> um, yeah you find other ways of of uh, of engaging with the hobby yeah absolutely and that's that's definitely something that um, that that is definitely something that I've been exploring with uh, well just you know last night for example you know I I hosted a, a paint and chat and I had, uh, well, my brother, he lives in, in a mile from me. So that's, that's pretty convenient. But, uh, you know, we had someone, 
uh, from Canada and someone from Michigan uh, on the paint and chat last night. And, you know, I've, I've done paint and chats with folks that were on completely different continents. And well, like right now, I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, you're, you're over in, uh, in Blighty there. And here I am in literally in the middle <laughs> of a completely different continent. And, and well, I you're think in that Kent country, aren't you? But no, he was uh, Kansas. Yeah. But, well, yeah, yeah. His Smallville is in Kansas. Yeah. But, uh, there is a, there is a metropolis, Missouri or metropolis, Illinois. And, uh, but uh, the uh, you know I've, I've run games with uh, folks on different continents over the internet as well, and it opens up it opens up so many different possibilities. And there's some there's some interesting there's some interesting territory to explore there with not just playing the same standard tabletop games that we've played before, but using our cameras to give a true units or commander's perspective on the table, for example. Yeah. Um, I, I think there, and this is a huge digression. I think this is actually worthy of a, of a, of a discussion in and of itself. Um, and given the nature of met games, that, that could be a pretty interesting space to explore just by, you know, where the camera is and as, you know, you would need a technical director to keep track of where the camera, you know, which camera is being used and where it's angled and, and that sort of thing. But I, I think that there's there's definitely something something there and it's it's got me thinking about, you know, you know, there's there's some opportunity there to explore a completely different type of game. Uh, to make Absolutely. to make this to make an immersive experience and not even be in the same on the same continent as as the other players. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because um, I, you know I'm not trying to um, derail your show and talking about my rules, but one of the ideas I've had uh, for the rules I'm working on is the use of um, cameras. Mm-hmm. and some assumptions about the face of future warfare. And, and again, I'm talking more about plausible um, uh, developments of the future battle space rather than the more fantastic Battletech, Macross, Robotech, whatever style. And one of the things I'm were playing with, uh, playing is maybe not quite the right word, but it will do for now, mm-hmm. is this idea that the future battlefield is A, going to be largely empty, but B, when units are revealed, everybody knows where everything is because of UAVs. Right. satellites yeah and i'm working on some mechanisms that where we can leverage that to be an advantage so that you just have an over uh, overhead view of the tabletop with all the when the models are on the table you can see where all the models are mm-hmm. but the fact that you can see where all the models are doesn't necessarily mean that you can actually um 
hit them right. because there's the countermeasures. Yep. And what you're seeing is always delayed by the transmission times. So taking kind of a, a metaphor of quantum mechanics, you know, the particle, is it is it here or is it there? There's probabilities, but it's within this area. Yeah. Right. And I'm taking that and applying it to, to try and simulate um, command control communications, intelligence, surveillance and expert systems all working together to produce a more uh, to produce a novel take on how future warfare works mm -hmm. and how things how you would command in that kind of environment so oh, that's absolutely. why the, the, the game is all about command and control you can see everything but your command assets means you probably can't attack everything Right. And those things that you can attack may not be where you think they are. They're only an approximation of where they, you think they are. So that's right, what right, I'm right. currently working on. Um, yeah, that, that sounds that sounds right up my alley, to be honest with you, because I've, I've got some similar thoughts on, you know, the way we've been approaching our futuristic gaming is largely a world war ii or vietnam game in space yep and, absolutely and there's nothing inherently wrong with that but there is i mean there are some there are some developments in command and control and you know however many numerals you want to put behind that c right and there, there's definitely some room for some for some real thought about how we can integrate that into what we would consider a hobby game, but even into a professional uh, war game, and yeah, uh, yeah I, I, I definitely will. We'll need to talk about that in the future for, <laughs> for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Come, come back at me uh, and that if you want to talk more about uh, C four SIR. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. yeah I, I think I think there's there's some great opportunities there to really expand some people's understanding of with even with current technology what what that means and and, and again why yeah we'll, we'll we'll definitely talk about that we'll we'll definitely talk about that i, I yeah. do want to wrap up um with just a couple of nods to some other things uh, because I, I do think there's there's room for bigger games using mechs and i and by bigger games i mean with larger model counts and with some simplification of rules and and just making sure that you're making the decisions at the right level, right? Because that's that's something that longtime listeners will will know I'm big on is are you making decisions that are appropriate for the level of command that you're modeling, right? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, back when I did on move war machine, you were basically the battalion commander. Mm -hmm. You know, that's where you were. And you are activating your company commanders, and then they would activate in turn their platoons and their platoon commanders and squad commanders. But you were basically running from from the battalion HQ perspective, and a lot of the other stuff was done with rules. So you know, mm -hmm. you activated them, and then they they worked according to the rules. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, now you mentioned GZG earlier, 
Um, I'm a longtime fan of Star Grunt and Full Thrust and Dirt Side. Um, in John has got some lovely miniatures in 15 for. Oh, he has. Yeah. And he's also got some lovely six mil miniatures and he's got some very Votoms looking and very Robotech Valkyrie looking mechs that are, would be perfect for either a robot in 15 mil or an armored suit in 10 mil. I um, actually um, took some of his Voton miniatures and sculpted up some extra accessories, uh, which, when he gets round to it, will become commercially available. Just keep nagging John and say, what about those things Ashley made for you for the Votoms? <laughs> and um, and uh, hopefully he'll bring them to market. I don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah, those are... those are. Let me see. I'm looking on the GZG site right now. Um those walkers are th- those walkers are, are really great and they are kind of limited in in the posing but that's okay yeah there, there's definitely some room for using those types of models in a, in a larger game and man there's just there there's definitely space for for some of the higher level thinking that you're talking about. And I, I really appreciate that. Um, I really appreciate that you're, you're thinking in that direction. And I, and I think that there's, there's a lot of fun to be had with that. And it, and it may not be as commercially viable, quite frankly, as opposed to, you know, a, another set of mech rules where you're the mech pilot. And, yep. uh, you know, I, I would definitely like to talk more about that sort of thing in the future. So we'll have to find some time and to, to make that happen. But, um, I, I will, I think, I think real quick, um, I, I know we talked about heavy gear being the best overall miniatures, but I, I do have to say the, my favorite mech design across any IP is the uh, in Robotech? It's the Zentradi officers battle pod. And, oh yeah, and, and in BattleTech, it's it's the original Marauder. Absolutely, it's a super cool design. It is. It really is. It's and, and regardless of what whatever it does in the game, it's. I mean, there's a reason it's the the original models are some of the most expensive that you can get on eBay. So. <laughs> A friend of mine when I was in college, this would have been 2001, 2002, uh, made the mistake of getting high and then going on eBay. (laughs) Ended up up spending like $130 on four Marauders. (laughs) I I actually have three of them. Um, You might have seen a a photo. Two of them are made up and one still to be made up. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. Which I've converted. I don't. I don't know. Have you checked out my blog? I've got lots of stuff on my my wargaming blog, um, and including my version of when I went back and had another bash at streamlining BattleTech, which I called uh, my Epiphany Rules, BattleTech Epiphany, mm-hmm. which uh, took the card mechanisms from Two Fat Lardies, I ain't been shot, Mum, 
and applied okay. them to the battle tech to replace the um, uh, the activation mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah? So yes. if you haven't checked it out, or if you need me to send you some links, because I've got a whole heap of stuff on my blog, um, just ask and it, I will do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, there's... Uh... You know, mech, mechs are one of those things that I, I can understand why some people aren't really into it. Um, and that's okay, you know. But I am I am very much into I'm very much into science fiction. I'm very much into looking at mechs uh, more from the smaller side, you know. Yeah, heavy me gear, too. Maddox O one, uh and but Votoms. I, Votoms, yeah. There's 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 certainly, certainly plenty to do there, and uh, and I appreciate you coming to, you know, spending some of your Sunday afternoon to, to talk about to talk about this. And um, I I would be remiss if we didn't mention that you are a published author as well. You've got a couple of uh, different uh, novel series or short story anthologies and that sort of thing. You want to you want to uh, you want to uh, yeah, I will. What's the yeah. word? I'm, there's there's a word that people use for that sort of thing. Oh, what is it? Oh, well, do you want to talk about those briefly? I've, I've spent yeah, way briefly. too many words trying to find that one word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I've obviously a BattleTech fan, and I've read, if not all, I've read a lots of the BattleTech novels. Um, now, many years ago, I did think about writing a Battletech novel, uh, taking the events in the Grey Death Legion trilogy and writing it from the perspective of the bad guy. But it's it's not my IP, and mm-hmm. nothing ever came of that. And back a few years ago, back in 2012, I was going through some difficult times, and uh, I thought I'd write a novel. And I've, I've been writing on and off you know, for a long time, uh, nothing published up to that point. And I started writing my novel, which was a Call of Cthulhu um, uh, homage. Mm-hmm. And then I've been researching Osama bin Laden and, and stuff, like you do if you're a war gamer. Sure. And the, his so-called secret base in the White Mountains of Afghanistan. And um, this idea, this sentence just popped into my head which was you know it's all big dog's fault that we died yesterday on a mountain in afghanistan and we're going to die again today Mm -hmm. and the idea just wouldn't leave my head so i ended up sitting down and starting a brand new novel which became bad dog and uh, it was just meant to be a standalone and it's a it's a story of a search and rescue. Marines doing a search and rescue uh, in mechs. Uh, the dogs, the eponymous dogs of the uh, t- title, which are 12 to 14 foot tall mech suits. Um, and what happens that day and why they die and why they keep dying and how to solve that problem so that she doesn't die because it's science fiction, and mm-hmm. uh, I took the idea from Arthur C. Clarke's the uh, 2001 the, pillar, uh, the, the Monoliths. I have my equivalent. They're called The Pillars, 
and they're some sort of hyperdimensional intrusion into our reality, um, which cause people to freeze on the spot when they activate, except mm. for our hero, her heroine, who somehow has the ability to, to, to carry on walking. And there's, there's lots of science reasons for that to do from my psychology background to do with transcranial okay. magnetic stimulation. And that's how the pillars work and stuff. So I wrote this story and I got to the end of it and, you know, the hero saved the day, uh, got herself a, a boyfriend out of that. And I knew what the sequel was. So I went and wrote the sequel, which was called Strike Dog, which is the first mission. So think Stargate meet Starship Troopers, not in the sense of bug hunts, but in the sense of, right. you know, there's power armor, they're going through the pillars to other planets, and Strike Dog is a, uh, is that novel of exploration, and they meet their first alien race, uh, the people of the four cities of Timakura, and then when I got to the end of that, I thought, oh, and I know where they go next, and so I wrote, I ended up writing one after the other, three novels. And then I spent the next few years rewriting them because, you know, I'd never written a novel. And funnily enough, uh, writing novels requires practice. And if you're a beginning novelist, you, you need to do an awful lot of practice. And eventually I got them sorted and I sent them out. I sent out uh, uh, to various publishers. I heard, only heard back from one and they said yeah no this is really interesting we like this but it's not for us because we're not sure how to sell it um right and i on reflection i can kind of see why because it's it's a bit like the war game rules we've been discussing it's it's not going to be for everyone uh, right. so eventually they got published uh, i set up my own publishing company and published them myself and they're doing okay. You know, people, um, the people who bought them have been, you know, who are, and then, sorry, I'm, I'm stuttering here. They're aimed at former or current serving military personnel. Okay. Even though I'm not one, I wanted to write a story that felt true to people who do put their lines on the life, uh, their mm -hmm. lives on the line for 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 their country, so they they what I uh, what one of my other military SF authors says that they're gritty, and they are you know mm -hmm. they're, they're kind of real you know people do die, um, obviously not the hero but she has some close calls, um, but nothing's guaranteed and I you know. So there's that trilogy, the Gatewalker trilogy, and the the MacGuffin, uh, which is just the term for what drives it, is that it's all set within a holographic multiverse. Because I'm big into my science, I'm not a scientist. I'm a psychologist, you know, which is kind of on the edges of, but it's very soft. But I have lots of friends, and my partner works at Imperial College for mm -hmm. physics. Uh, so I've got people like. I can pick their minds. I read around the subject. So I read Mark Tegmark's The Mathematical Universe. And I just took a lot of those science ideas. and went, What if these are true? What if we do live in a holographic universe? How would that affect things? And, and it all kind of fell together. So I'm currently working on the fourth book, 
which is called Two Moons, might be called Pandora or might be called Two Moons uh, Prometheus. I haven't, the title's not written in stone yet because it's only 30,000 words of the, the novel. And um, I'm having to do a heck of a lot of scientific research for that because mm-hmm. I know Jack and squat about uh, uh, physics, really. Um, yeah. I know Jack and squat about archaeology, and it's very much an archaeological novel because they're going to go and find out who were the aliens that created the, the people, the four peoples of Timakura, which are the people they met in Strike Dog, uh, who are odd. Uh, they're odd because they're kind of primitive. They have four distinct phenotypes, you know, they're very stereotypically science fiction, cat people, dog people, lizard people, bear people, but they're not because their genetics, they're, they've got all the same set of genetics. They just had um, genetic engineering done on them to mm. express different physical appearances. And that's a p- part of the plot. And my characters don't know why the, the makers, the progenitors, did this uh, again that's part of the plot and the next books is going to start to reveal what were the progenitors doing why were they doing it and why is this bad news for our characters uh, without giving too much away and then my other series is a set of four short shortish they're called novelettes they're like a long short stories um and there's an omnibus edition my World of Dre series is my second series. It deals with cyber tanks uh, because Ogre and Gev is definitely a thing. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, there are four uh, novelettes in the series. Um, they were practice. I mean, and by practice, I mean I was writing things that I normally wouldn't consider to be writing, and I wanted to, to see how it worked. Uh, so I wrote four short stories um, from the perspective of a platoon of a company, uh, the seventh rotor uh, in Russia during the second Russian civil war, because I was fed up with reading American second uh, civil wars and those themes. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wouldn't it be more interesting to, to have Russia suffer some pain of a civil war and cyber tanks so it's cyber tanks power armor in a russian uh, near future second civil war and there's four novelettes and you can buy them also in a combined volume uh, which includes some extra bonus material for character perspectives that don't appear in the original four novelettes as they stand. And then I've got a short story, which was what inspired um, them called Territory, uh, which is uh, started off as a battle report when I was a a game demoing games for Steve Jackson of an ogre game. And I rewrote it into a short story called Territory which is all about ogres becoming sentient. The World of Dre was my attempt to to practice writing from the perspective of an artificial intelligence. Hmm. And uh, that's quite challenging. I mean, 
I think the stories are interesting. I like my stories. I mean, you know, I wouldn't put them up if I didn't like them. Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to make a breakthrough in how I write about alien perspectives in future stories because it was very much a learning process. I mean, we're, we're kind of talking about writing now rather than gaming. I mean, right. you know, um, how do you write the perspective of a non-human intellect? It, it's kind of a fascinating question if you're into writing. It's kind of the same in wargaming. How do you actually have a proper alien army if you're doing a science fiction game? So these right. things interest me, and my writing and my gaming are ways of me working through these ideas and coming up with hopefully entertaining and fun uh, examples. Yeah, it's, and I think that there's definitely there's definitely some room for that, um, and I know that there was an attempt at that, or there there is a. I'm not sure how much of an attempt there was, but you know, Stargrunt fans will be familiar with the, or Tufflyverse fans will be familiar with the, uh, uh, with the off reference or often referenced but never actually materialized Bugs Don't Surf supplement for uh, Stargrunt, which was going to be a look at alien, at alien uh, psychology and motivations, so that you know, our non-human uh, combatants in our games don't don't suffer from rubber suit syndrome or man in a rubber suit syndrome. Yeah, absolutely. And also, if they have alien technology, it needs to be alien technology, not just uh, Star Trek, you know, teleporters and, and uh, stuff. It has absolutely. to be, you know... Something that makes it alien. And that's right. tricky. I mean, that's not an easy thing. I mean, it's easy to say, yeah, but most of the time aliens end up to being rubber-headed foreheads, you know, on, right. on humans. I mean, there's practical reasons in, in TV shows for that. But, you know, um, in fiction, I mean, I don't know if you what you read, but Peter Watts wrote um, a book called Blindsight, which has some of the most alien aliens in it you'll ever find uh it means that the book is not always as as accessible as more general science fiction books but if you can tolerate that it's it's brilliant i mean it just absolutely just twists alien psychology and directions you think wow I would never have thought of that. I, I like that sort of stuff. Of course, it means that the market is smaller, but just because the market's smaller doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Oh, no, absolutely. I agree 100%. So, well, I, I think that that is a great place to, to wrap things up. I Ashley, I want to thank you very much for agreeing to come on the show. And I'm, I'm editing out most of the... Uh, minor emergencies and trauma that occurred and uh, <laughs> in the house and my wife just texted me are you close to wrapping up so yes <laughs> we're close to it's been an absolute pleasure and an honor so, yeah well, well, well th thank you again um i look forward to uh maybe having that uh, discussion on your uh c4sir rules and 
and going from there. And uh, would you like to play test? Well, I we'll we'll talk about that. We'll talk okay. about that for sure. So sure. Um, Ashley, again, thank you very much. Uh, Going to be a lot of show notes on this one because there's a lot of stuff that I do want folks to to uh, pay particular attention to, and uh, I uh, look forward to seeing more stuff on Twitter. And you know, you know, I always like seeing uh, the heavy gear stuff get painted up. So I appreciate that. Cool. Thank you again. Oh, you're very welcome. Have a nice and day. On... What's that? Have a nice day. Oh, well, great. Thank you very much. You as well. I hope you have a great rest of your day. And we've got, uh, it's a day off tomorrow for, for many Americans. It's Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day, whichever term you want to use, but it's a day off regardless. So uh, Enjoy. Oh, thank you. Uh, on that note, if the games you're having aren't any fun, you make them fun. That is all. Music courtesy of freemusicarchive.org.